morning, good morning. Great to be with you. Uh, fifth time now, I think. Uh, last fall was my first opportunity to join you, the lovely folks of life, and um, I always seem to be on uh, major, major events in the world. I was here October 31st, 2017, I think, was the first time, which some of you historians know is what? The 500th anniversary of the Reformation, exactly. If you don't know what the Reformation is, just poke the person on the left or the right of you who looks like they're older than you and say, what's the Reformation? Uh, today is November 11th, 2018, the 100th anniversary of armistice, right? The end of World War I. And uh, that was the war that was supposed to end all wars. The, uh, the leaders of their time were arrogant enough to think that. Uh, obviously, they didn't read their Bibles because Jesus said there will always be wars and rumors of wars until he returns. Uh, and I found that to be, though, sort of commonplace that I don't think too many people in leadership read their Bibles. I hope you do. And uh, we're going to spend a little time in it today. I brought the New American Standard with me. If you have the New American Standard on your phone or if you have another version. Uh, we're going to do a, a big overview of a fairly long portion of Scripture. So we're going to look at it uh, in some depth as we bounce along uh, through it. And we're going to start in Matthew 5. So if you've got a Bible or you want to pull it up, that's where we'll be. This is entirely different than the message I, I preached in the first uh, sermon. I just felt like we needed to go a different direction because it's a different group of people, different needs. But if you'd like to hear it, it was, uh, I think, a very timely message on truth this morning. So that's available, I would imagine, for some place and somehow. Um, <laughs> I, I attribute my conversion... Uh, to April or late March, early April of 1981, when I bowed my knee to the Lord Jesus and became a, a believer and was filled with his spirit and transferred my life into his hands and accepted his life into me, into my spirit and heart. So um, I count my born-again experience from that moment on and, and serving the Lord beyond that. But I can look back at my life and recognize that the Lord had placed things in my life and, and uh, he was active. Some would call it prevenient grace. That's a theological term that means God was active in our lives prior to the moment that we confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and believed him to be the Son of God. And one of those ways that his, he was prevenient in me or he was working in me prior to my becoming a, a believer was that I, I seemed to be born with a, an insatiable need to know the truth. Um, matter of fact, I can look back to my kindergarten time. Uh, all, man, my, my goodness, that's what, 53 years ago. And, uh, and remember that I created a little bit of a stir in my class. I think my mother, who's sitting down here to my left, had to come into, into the school to talk to my teacher because I took it upon myself to make sure all my classmates were informed that by no uncertain terms, there was no longer any Santa Claus. You can imagine how that went over, right? But I, it was the truth, right? It is the truth in a sense. I mean, there is no person, that I, I get all that. I get all the sense and the spirit of Christmas, all that. I love that and all that good. But to a five-year-old mind, there's no guy coming down your chimney, and there's no eight reindeers, and there's no Rudolph. I mean, that's just a figment of somebody's imagination. It wasn't true. 
And I could track my trajectory of my life pretty much along those lines of always wanting to be the one who is right. And that made me insufferable into my classmates most of the time and a giant jackass. But basically, can I, I'm sorry, can I say that here? Okay, thank you. Um, but it, it, it's who I was. I just wanted to know the truth. <clears throat> because I was that insufferable jack guy, um, uh, I ran into a whole lot of problems early in my life. When I was in my teens and early 20s, I was, again, about me. And you know that life, the life that's uh, wine, women, and song, and, and the pursuit of all that. And, and I always say that I was basically a big wrecking ball, uh, going through life and destroying people's lives. And and life itself was, uh, had, be, had become miserable. The way I came to know the Lord Jesus, and I may have shared this with you, but uh, I was going to uh, a college, uh, Northwestern University, who just won the Big Ten, by the way, hey, hey, um, and actually playing football when, when they were getting beat all the time uh, and not winning at all. Um, I, the, the college said, you're not really serious about classes. You need to leave for a year and come back when you're serious. And so... Being kicked out of college does uh, something to a young man, and, uh, and my mother had been praying for me. I, she had been asking me to, to listen to some teaching on television, and, and I really didn't know anything else to do but say, Jesus, I've ruined my life, and that's the way I said it. I've ruined my life. I give it to you if you can do anything with it. Well, you know the Lord can do anything with anybody, right? That's who he is. He can take anything and make it good. And so he, he took me up on my bargain and uh, took my life and gave me his. And so life was really the thing, the abundant life. One of the first verses of Scripture I memorized was, uh, I am come, Jesus said in, uh, in the, uh, to his disciples in John, I am come that you might have what? Life and do, ha do what? Have it more abundantly. I was all about life. And so I was engaged in the Pentecostal charismatic world and the life of of the gifts of the Spirit and the life, you know, all those cool things that were happening back in the 80s. If you weren't born then yet, ask your parents about it. It was pretty fun. Um, so that's, that was what I had. And then about 20 years ago, uh, as I was in full-time ministry at that time, and I, I was, I'm always in full-time ministry. It's just that sometimes the church pays me and sometimes it doesn't. And uh, I'm in one of those periods where it doesn't and someone else pays me, the YMCA. Uh, but I'm always ministering the gospel. And about 20 years ago, while I was working for a church and working in a church, I really got tired of the name Christian. Um, I felt that it was being used for all the wrong reasons. It was like a big freight train, you know, a big train where all the cars had been laden with all kinds of baggage, you know. So, so Christian meant all kinds of things to all kinds of people, and a lot of it wasn't good at all. A lot of it wasn't who we are. It had political connotations and and social ramifications and a lot of different things that I didn't think that Christianity uh, really imbued and really was uh, true about it. And so I wanted to say, I'm not really a Christian, um, you know, I'm, I'm this or that. And, I, and I've seen that over the last 20 years, that people don't like they were in Christian so much and they want to call themselves Christ followers or something in that regard. But about a year or two ago, uh, I really said, you know, Christian's a pretty cool, pretty cool name. Um, it's interesting that we didn't, from what we, what we know, what we read in the scriptures, uh, that that's not the name we gave ourselves. The first name we gave ourselves, which is where I'm going, where you're wondering, where's this guy going? The first name that we gave to ourselves is followers of the way. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with the way that's over in Ohio somewhere, right? But, but that's how the disciples, the disciples, the disciples, everybody say disciples. 
Thank you. The disciples thought about themselves. They were followers of the way. There was a way of life that they were following. Not just a man that they were following, but a way of life. And yet when we look at Jesus, what, we, what, would we say, what do we know about him? What does he say about himself? Again, in John, in the, uh, the, the upper room discourse, and starting in chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, I knew all about truth, man. That's, that's what got me. That's where I, I was wired that way. I love truth. Uh, I argued the truth. I was unwisely sharing the truth, not always in love, but the truth was something that was important to me. The life, man, the life in Christ was so much better than the life I had in the world. The life that was abundant, the life that was full, the life of peace and joy and all those wonderful things, right? The way, however, was a little sketchy to me, a little fuzzy. What does it mean, the way? And a couple years ago, when... I realized that Christian is a name of honor in our world nowadays. You say honor? To, to me it is. To the world, and the world uses it, it's obviously a, a moniker of shame, right? It's a badge of dishonor. If you're called a Christian, you're not called that with any great affection, correct? Right? In our world, to be a Christian means to be someone who's a bigot, oftentimes, right? Someone who is severely out of step with the modern sensibilities of man, who has believed an incredible lie, and who can be dangerous because their trajectory is rooted in and from the scriptures. And so to be called a Christian in many places is uh, to suffer shame rather than honor. And so I decided, you know what, I want to be a part of that group. I, I want to be counted with my brothers who are suffering. I want to I be a part of them. I want to stand beside them. I want to stand beside the people like Isabella Chow. You know Isabella? You hear of Isabella? That name rings a bell. She was the young lady in the uh, Senate uh, at UC Berkeley, uh, University of California, Berkeley, the, 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 the home of the free speech movement, right? That's become uh, a, a very anti-Christian. Um, and uh, the Senate, of which she was a part, one of 20, uh, decided that they would... Uh, pass a resolution condemning the uh, Trump administration's efforts to define sex uh, based on your birth. They thought that, of course, was extremely bigoted, homophobic, transgender phobic, all, all the other phobics, uh, and uh, they were ready to condemn Mr. Trump and his administration because of it. Well, Ms. Chow, Ms. Isabella Chow, abstained. She didn't vote against it. She didn't excuse herself and just not be there like a couple people were. She came to the meeting, abstained, but in her abstention, she read to them a five-paragraph statement of why she's abstaining. And part of the reason why she's abstaining is because she's a Christian, and she calls herself a Christian, and she, and she names the name of Jesus Christ. Not only does she name his name, but she is not ashamed of his word. Remember what Jesus said? I, I, if you're ashamed of me and my word, when I come back, I won't know you anymore. And Ms. Chow, not being ashamed of Jesus nor of his word, said, listen, I love you. I love the transgender community. I love the, the LGBT community. I don't want to be a bigot. I don't want to create an issue. But I cannot in good conscience vote for this because I believe the choices that you're making will cause you harm. It will not be to your best interest to change your sex. It will not be to your best interest to, to deny who you were by birth. It will not be that wisdom for you. There's a better way for you. And so because she was a Christian, because she was rooted in biblical truth, uh, she was disavowed. 
She was disavowed by the people who put her into office, those who supported her, cut ties with her immediately. They called another session of the Senate to denounce her. And so one by one by one, those folks who uh, think Christians are homophobes and transphobes and all that, denounced her as a bigot, as a racist, as a, as a, as a what is it, a danger to the way of life at UC Berkeley. Uh, she's been hounded by the press, hounded by her students, hounded to the point where I'm praying for Miss Chow that she would be able to walk in Christ and walk uh, in forgiveness and in grace. And I want to be named with people like that. I want to be known as Miss Chow's friend. I want to stand up with her in that regard. But to do that, not only do I have to stay faithful to the truth of God and rejoice in and live the life of God, but I also have to walk in the way of God. And I would say to you, um, there, there really are, and my wife will attest to this, when I became saved, I became born again, the Lord gave me a wonderful gift of being able to understand and comprehend sort of the breadth and scope of the Bible, basically being able to know how it all fits together and, and the warp and the woof of it and the pattern of it and the beauty of it and the narrative and all the wonderful things about it. But in the older, the older I get, the longer I live, the more important it is for me to go deeper into it. I understand that that's what you're doing here at Life, and I applaud you for it. I, I think that's a wonderful thing. Not only do I want to be conversant or familiar with the Scripture, I want to be intimate. And I know there, it, it's such a large book and so many things that it's difficult to be intimate with all parts of it. And so in this hour of my life, I really want to be intimate with three parts. Uh, and not to say that the others aren't important, that I don't enjoy them or won't by the Spirit be led into them. But, but there really are three things, and I call them the Lord's sermons or the Lord's discourses. And so in Matthew 5, you have the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and those are basically, the, if you have a Bible like mine, it's where all the red is, right? It's basically where Jesus is unfettered and, and just uninterrupted, and he's sharing truth with his disciples or the world, right? There's not much narrative going on. There's no, no dialogue. There's no action happening. It's just Jesus teaching us. And he's, and he's explained to us the most important things from his heart. And, and he's sharing truth with us in large portions, and so we, we call that either the, the Sermon or Sermon on the Mount or Discourse. So the Sermon on the Mount is about that way. While, while I believe that the, the upper room discourse, that last time that he shared with the disciples about the life, it's about how we live this life, about how we get power for this life, about, about how we relate to him and how we, how we are empowered by the Spirit and how we live in him and he lives in us, about life, where, where the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, is about the truth, and about the end time lawlessness and deception that will try to sweep truth away. You know we're living in what the New York Times two years ago is called the post-truth world, right? Where the world is trying to sweep away all truth and sweep away all those who would hold fast to truth. Jesus warned us that that would happen in the Olivet Discourse. It's the end time prophecies that Jesus shares. This is what's happening. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. It will be t difficult. It will be challenging. You will be persecuted. Even they will put you to death. But don't lose hope in the faith that it will triumph. So you have the life in the upper room discourse. You have the truth in the Olivet discourse. And you have the way in the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's the Sermon on the Mount really that for me recently has been, I want to understand. I want to become intimate with it. Because in that, I find a disciplined way of life. I'll tell you a story. Um, uh, recently, I read a book called The Boys of 1936. Uh, maybe you've read it. Maybe you've seen the PBS uh, 
uh, sorry about that, the PBS uh, uh, video or, or pro program that uh, used the book as the uh, basis of their, their programming. And basically, it's about the eight young men, plus the Cox and nine young men, uh, who came from the University of Washington, raw frontier time in those days, in 1936, and uh, represented the United States in the eight-man rowing competition. Uh, the 36th Olympics, of course, were known as uh, Hitler's Olympics. That was the time when he was trying to showcase Nazi Germany, and, uh, and the Americans uh, were the hope. Uh, it, every, Germany had won all the other racing, the rowing races, and these eight young men, these raw, uh, poor young fellas, uh, uh, took the world on, this very disciplined world, and, and beat them at their own game and won the gold medal. And they were, they were uh, led by a coxswain. The coxswain is the guy at the back. He's the little guy. The other eight are big, strong, strapping guys. He's the little, tiny guy at the back yelling, stroke, stroke. He's the guy that keeps the pace, right? He's the guy that tells him when to speed up and when to slow down. And this guy's name was Bobby Mock. Bobby Mock was a midget among giants. I mean, Bobby Mock was about five foot four, and all the other guys were six two, six three, six five. So he, he was towered over. He was uh, um, Phi Kappa Beta, though, which means he was a brilliant young man. He, he, he succeeded in life. And in this program, as I was watching it, they were interviewing several of the children of these rowers, and they interviewed Bobby Mock's son. And he said this, and it hit me. It hit me. This, this Phi Beta Kappa, right, sharp, uh, gold medal winning young man, he said Bobby didn't want to be known as smart, though he was. He didn't want to be known as funny, though he was. He wanted to be known as disciplined. That's how he wanted to be known in his life, as disciplined. And I thought, that's, that's the way Jesus is asking us to be known, as his disciples, right? To be disciplined in a certain way of life. He wants us to be more like the Marine Corps and less like the Air Force. I'm sorry if there's any Air Force. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a Navy guy, so I don't I'm in like in the middle here, you know? I played with the Marines, and the Air Force got me where I wanted to go from time to time, and so God bless them both. But man, when you're a Marine, you're a Marine, right? Even when you take the uniform off, you're still a Marine. No one says, I'm an Air Force guy. We're not no one, but I, I, you know what I'm getting at. But there's a sense of discipline. And that's with the church. Now, a lot of us came into the church hoping it was the Air Force. You know, cushy assignments, nice beds, you know, sh warm sheets, plenty of food, Easy, you know, few, out, no, nobody's shooting at us. We're way back in the back where we just send planes over, unless you're the pilot, of course. Uh, and the Marine Corps is a whole different kind of world. Up front, warm beds, warm, warm food is, is, an, is anathema to them. They don't have an understanding of that. But discipline, discipline. And I would say that the church of Jesus Christ in this hour, if they are to succeed, must embrace discipline. I think we lack it. Can you, I, I just want to say myself, I, I've lacked discipline at times. It's very easy to get distracted with all the other things that happen in my life, right? The things that, that distract me and, and demotivate me and, and amuse me, and, uh, and I lack discipline. But if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that's how were you? That, that word is used so often in the New Testament. He talked to his disciples. His disciples followed him. His disciples were sent. They were called disciples even before they were called apostles. 
Apostle means to be sent. A disciple means to follow, to be a learner, to be one who's disciplined in a certain way of life. He has a type of life. He holds to the truth, but there is a way that a disciplined man walks. And I would say to you, and I would recommend to you, that you'll find that disciplined way in the Sermon on the Mount. And so in the few minutes that we have together, I want to take us just briefly in a very high-level sort of overview of the Sermon on the Mount to say, what is it about the Sermon on the Mount that speaks to my discipline? If I'm to become a disciplined person, if I'm to hold fast, and, and I want to tell you why that's so important, and I'll tell you that at the end, but if I'm to become a disciplined person, what is it that I need to do? Okay, so if you're in the book of Matthew, you turn to chapter 5, you'll find the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 and 6 and 7. And that sermon begins with something called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who have been persecuted. We call those the Beatitudes. Every life, every way of life must begin with an ambition, a goal. In other words, every way of life is a way of life because at the end of that way, there is a prize. There is something that we want at the end of our journey. And so we choose that way of life because we want that reward. We want to be known as this kind of person. We want to have this kind of money. We want this ability. We want these rewards. We want this status. We choose a way of life because of what is promised us at the end of that life. And so Jesus says, listen, if you want to be disciplined, your ambition must to be blessed rather than anything else. It's not the happy life that we're after. It's not the abundant life that we're after in terms of material abundance. It's not the familial life we're after. Some people say it's all about family. Jesus didn't say it was all about family. He said the best life, the disciplined life, was the blessed life. And the blessed are people like this, the people who are more comfortable with poverty than with riches, who are more drawn to those who have nothing than to those who have everything. The blessed are those who mourn rather than laugh. We live in a, in a culture that, that promotes laughter. We think laughter is the best thing. Jesus said mourning is the best thing. It's more blessed to mourn than to laugh. He will say that in Luke, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's just the way he expands it there in Luke rather than in Matthew. But he's saying you're blessed if you mourn, if the world hurts you, if you mourn for the condition of the world, if you mourn for the condition of, of your fellow man, if you mourn because of his future, if you mourn because he's missing the life of God, if he's left the truth, if he's swept up in foolishness and deception, you mourn. You're blessed if you're meek. If you allow God to choose for you your position and status in life rather than thinking you can do everything and anything you want and put your mind to. That's a fallacy. God has chosen for you your limits, not you and me. God chooses where we'll be born and what we'll be and who we'll be. He puts within a certain DNA that allows us to have so many options but no more, that we're limited because of who God chooses us to be. We're not unlimited like he is. Someday we will. Someday we'll be like him and have an unlimited sphere in a sense. But today we're limited. We're either male or female. We're not both. We're not either or. We either, we either have an intelligence of such an IQ or this an IQ, and those things limit us. But the meek man says, my place, O oh God, I will, I will walk in. My place, I will worship you. 
for and because of. I will be like Esther saying, perhaps I was born for a time like this. Or I will be like David and I will bless you in the wilderness even when I'm pursued by the king. I will bless you for the life you've given me. We used to call it your place in life. And we've gotten away from that because in America, anybody can be everything. Well, that's a blatant lie. You can't be anything you want to be. Now, you can be more than you are, perhaps, but there are certain limits. And the meek one says, I will accept what God has given me and the portion that he's given me, and I will bless his name and not yammer and complain because of it. We're blessed if we hunger and thirst for righteousness rather than for food. We, we're, we're blessed if we get in the middle of those who are in warfare. We, we, we're peacemakers if we will find the best life, the good life. We're pure in heart rather than, than those who are sating their flesh. It goes on and on. But if you're going to be a disciplined person, if I'm going to be a disciplined person, the first thing I have to see is that there's a life at the end of that life, there's a certain way I want to be through this life that will get me exactly everything I've wanted in this life, which is, as we'll see, well done, good and faithful servant. So the second thing about the disciplined life, the first thing, that it has a different ambition, a different scope, a different premise than any other way of life that's offered to us. The way of life is specific. It's a blessed life that we're after. It's a blessed life that it gives us uh, the, the, the motivation to move forward in this way. But it's also a life that's more righteous than any other legal system in the world. Up until this time, everyone lived, tried to live up to a legal system that was standardized uh, uh, by the Mosaic Law or Hammurabi's Code. They, they believed that the highest righteousness was the righteousness of the law. Jesus comes to overturn that and says there's a higher righteousness. To be disciplined means to be more than just a law keeper, at least the laws of man. To be disciplined means to be a law of Christ follower. And that law is a law of love, and it goes beyond the laws of men. It goes beyond what man expects. It goes beyond what man asks of us, and we are required to do what God requires of us. That's the disciplined life. It's not enough to be what man wants. It's where we are when God calls us and where we respond to, which leads to the disciplined life. And so it's not enough for us just not to murder. That's what man is required to do. For us, it's not to be angry with our brother without a cause. For us, it's not just enough to not commit adultery, not to, to go and run away with your uh, neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband. That's not enough for us. We must not even look on another woman to lust after her, right? It, it, it's not enough to, 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 uh, to, to say an oath and just promise uh, we're going to do it if we put our hand on a Bible and we stand on a stack of Bibles and we, we sign a contract and we make an oath. Jesus said, you must just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You must have such integrity that they don't need you to write a, a contract that's signed in, in duplicate over 20 pages. You must simply be a person of your word. Yes or no. And no, no yammering, no confusion, no apologies. It's just yes or no. Now, we recognize that it, the Jews couldn't even live up to man's righteousness, right? They couldn't even live up to Moses' righteousness. And so there's something going on here that we have to recognize that the way requires, the, uh, the, the way of discipline requires a certain type of life, a certain type of power in that life. And that's why the upper room discourse is so important. Because in the upper room discourse, we learn how to live this kind of righteousness. 
Only by being powered by the Spirit, only by being filled with the Spirit, only by being in unity and communion with the Lord himself, only by having a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ can we ever hope to be disciplined enough to rise up to God's standards and not man's. Without the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, we will be like Peter before Pentecost and not Peter after Pentecost, right? We all know what Peter was before Pentecost, right? He was there by the fire when they were trying Jesus. One of the young women around the fire says, hey, you're, you're part of that group too. You're a Nazarene just like he was. You, you we're going to take you over to Pilate too. And Pete, what did Peter say? He denied her once, denied her twice. He cursed at her and denied her the third time. The cock crew, which Jesus said would actually be what happens. And he went out and wept bitterly because he was weak. Pentecost comes, the Spirit falls on him, the power of God dwells within him, and he stands up to the very people that he was afraid of just a few days before and boldly proclaims Jesus Christ. They whip him, and he keeps preaching. They threaten him, and he keeps preaching. They jail him, and he keeps preaching. Why? Because he was not the Peter prior to Pentecost. He was the Peter after Pentecost. He was the Peter with the Spirit. You see, Jesus just doesn't want us to just not run away with our wife's friends and our husband. He wants us to not even think about that. And that takes a power beyond ourselves. And that's the second half and part of the Sermon on the Mount. The third part then, after the, the manner of life, after the, the, the goal of life, the blessed life, the righteous life, then there is the humble life. You see, because once, once you begin to taste a righteousness, listen to me, that supersedes the righteousness of man, the righteousness of the Mosaic law, the temptation will be, and the tempter will come. If he can't keep you from this way, he'll tempt you to be proud about this way. Look what I have. Look what I've done. Look who I am. I am the disciplined one. You know, the only thing I don't like the Marines is they get in your face and tell you they're Marines. I get that. Thank you. And if you're a Marine, God bless you. You know I'm just making, you know, you can whoop on me afterwards, which you're right to do. Um, but, but what we're saying is that Jesus doesn't want the church to be in your face. Now, that doesn't mean we step away from the truth. It doesn't mean we don't celebrate the life. It doesn't mean we stop walking. To, it means that we don't do it so that we can be seen by others. We're humble. We realize what we're doing, what we're doing is not in our own power, so we really got nothing to brag about. It's really how Paul says it. He says, I worked harder than you all, talking about the other apostles, but it wasn't I that did it, but Christ that worked in me. And so the, the disciplined life is a blessed life, it's a righteous life, and it's a humble life. And finally... It's a narrow life. And let me finish our time together in two verses. Actually, two places. Both of them have a couple verses. Verse 13 in chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate. The disciplined life is narrow. It is not for everyone, although it is for everyone. In a sense, Christ calls us all. But he said, many are called, and what? Few are chosen. Because few will allow themselves to be defined by the blessed life rather than the happy life. 
Few will rise to the challenge of a righteousness that's beyond the righteousness of man. Few will allow themselves to be humble enough so that the glory and the praise goes to anyone else but them. Few will be less judgmental and critical enough, and that's chapter 7, to not condemn others for not following that way of life. But those who have chosen that way walk through a narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many, listen to me, there are many who enter through it. The way of destruction is broad. The way of destruction is wide. And most of the world will follow through those gates and in that way. But the end thereof, Jesus says, is destruction. For the gate is small, verse 14, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. There are few who find it. I want us to be those few. The few, the humble, the Christians, <laughs> if I can borrow again from the Marine Corps, right? For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And is there a... If, if, if life is the prize for, for finding this life, is there a downside for not entering the gate? Is there a penalty for not going through the narrow gate and the, the narrow way? Well, Jesus doesn't take too long before he says there is. In Matthew 27, 24, he says, Therefore, to end this sermon on the mount, this beautiful sermon about discipline, about the way of life, the way of turning the other cheek, the way of going the second mile, the way of providing those who have not with something, the way of trust and intimacy with the Father, the way of righteousness. He says, if you hear these words of mine, this sermon about these things, and you act on them, you act on them, you do them, you pour yourself into these pages and let them be poured into you. You feed off them like you're feeding on your last meal. You bathe in them like you're a dirty fool. You worship at the feet of the person who spoke them. If you put yourself in them and do them and act on them, you may be compared, and I may be compared, to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew. What's that? That's code for the life we're living now, the world we're living in now, where the winds of, of adversity may rise up at any moment. There's another young woman that caught my attention not, re, not too long ago by the name of uh, Asia Bibi. She's a Pakistani woman. She's been on death row in Pakistan for several years because uh, it was it said, as a Christian, she blasphemed Muhammad. And the Pakistani government condemned her to death. Well, that got caught wind of in several courses, and many came to her aid and, and defense. And uh, after several years in prison, she was in prison for several years on death row, she got a reprieve from the Supreme Court of Pakistan. But that's when the winds began to really blow. Because the Pakistanis in Karachi weren't satisfied with the Supreme Court of Pakistan, and they convened what they call the People's Court. 
Brother, when the people's court convenes, be careful. When the people's court convene as it's convening out in California at UC Berkeley, or it's convening in Karachi, Pakistan, or it's convening in Florida or wherever, be careful. Because that's when the winds are really blowing. And they're looking to, they're looking not just to, to, <laughs> to diminish you, not just to marginalize you. They're looking to destroy. The winds are looking to plot flatten you. The rains fell, the floods came, the floods of persecution, the rains of discouragement, all that came. But look what happened. They slammed against that house. Slammed against that house. It wasn't a gentle trickle. The world's persecution against Christianity will not be a gentle trickle. The world's fury at truth will not be a gentle rain. The world's disgust at Christianity will not be a simple flood. It will slam against us. It will slam against us. And yet, Jesus said, those that hear these words and act on them stand fast. The house did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Not just on an image of the rock, but the rock itself. Don't be founded just in an idea of Jesus. Be founded on Jesus. Don't be satisfied with an idea or a thought about who he is. Know him and know his words. Because when you're founded on that rock, the world can do what it will. Fury, words signifying nothing, as Shakespeare once said, if we're disciplined and founded on the rock because we're doing and acting on his words. But everyone, he says in verse 26, who hears the everyone, not just some, everyone, there's no exception, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall. Listen, friends, many of my brothers and sisters who've been brothers and sisters of mine are trying, are trying to shelter out the storm, shelter out the storm by going soft on the truth, pulling back from the life. They know that if they stand fast in the truth, they will be abused and misused, and so they're trying to, to make it look good. Have you heard about the, the Lutheran pastor, the Lutheran pastoress? who's now promoting uh, uh, good sex and, and saying to everyone that porn is a great thing as long as it's ethically sourced. Lutheran pastor. Can you imagine what Martin Luther would do if he heard that? Or, or about the guy that's preaching out there and all of a sudden he just decides to go off on a 20-minute rant about how great his sex was with his wife and how many times they've done it and how good they are at it. We're, we're, we're trying to... We're trying to finesse Christianity to make it palatable to the world. Listen, friends, the time for that is past. The spirit of lawlessness, and if you want to know about that, listen to the first message. The spirit of lawlessness is already at work, and the man of lawlessness is already at the door. And there's no making peace with him, and there's no compromise with him. He is all about destroying us so that he might be the only one in town. You see what I'm saying? And so the only way to stand is to live a disciplined life. 
not back from the truth, not back from the life, but begin to engage in discipline. Are you a disciplined believer? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? I know I've talked to the leadership here. They're going to be asking you to make some more commitment to not just the church, but to Christ in a disciplined life. Because, friend, that's the only life that will stand fast in the coming storm. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you that you have not held hard truth from us, that you have not um, uh, sugar-coated it, uh, you have not hidden it, you've not kept it from us. You've let us know that a time is coming when those who disagree with you will disagree with us, when those who hated you will hate us, when those who persecuted us, will, you will persecute us, when those who put you to death will try to do the same to us. But I thank you, Lord. You did not let, leave us hopeless or helpless. That you've sent your spirit, that powerful, mighty Holy Spirit, that we might stand fast. You've given us a spirit of discipline, a mind of discipline, that we might walk in a way and act on your words and endure the storms of life. Father, may this group today, may myself at the first, as the first and the rest of us following, may we, Lord, hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we act as peacemakers wherever we find adversity. May we give mercy when none is given. May we rejoice with those who have little and give what we have in duplicate so that everyone may have something. May our hearts be pure as we look at our fellow man, as we look at his things and our things, may we not lust after them, may we not be envious or jealous. Father, may we act on these words of the Sermon on the Mount. May we do them and find ourselves standing in that hour. We ask it in Jesus' name.